Hi, my name is Scott and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website www.RestoredTemecula.Church and click on contact. We also have a mobile app with resources including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoyed the message. I love you guys. Uh, quick shout out to the youth. Uh, Ebony was at the Halloween party and I have to say, guys look good. Like there's some solid costumes, some really, really solid costumes. We get a lot of fun. Um, shout out to Dorian and his team and the adults. You guys are, I just, I, I, I echo, I think Tracy mentioned, I just echo the, the, the privilege it is to like how special it is to belong to community um, that's centered on Jesus and that is for each other. It's like, guys, it's such a gift. And so I just feel really privileged to be part of this church family. Um, this morning, we're going to continue on in our series going through Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can grab it. Um, we're going to be in, uh, in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. But we're in this series called The King and His Kingdom, where we're exploring as much as we possibly can about Jesus the King and what his kingdom is like, what his rule and his reign is like. What does it look like when God gets his way? All right, that's kind of the premise around learning about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Those two things are synonymous. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to just jump right in, okay? So if you have your Bibles, you can grab them. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 14. And I want to pray really quickly, and then I want to dive in, because there's some, there's some really, really beautiful things here for us this morning. But uh, yeah, will you, will you pray with me? I want to pray and ask the Spirit of God to, to prepare us and to open our hearts and minds to really glean some of the beautiful truths. And maybe there's an invitation here for us today that I think is really spectacular. And so let's pray together before we read God's word. Yeah, Holy Spirit, we pause for just a moment. Recognizing you're present with us. Not just with us, but within us. And we ask you to show us Jesus more clearly this morning. Point us to Jesus. Help us to see his glory, his goodness, his kindness, his faithful love, his steadfast love, his gracious, merciful love more clearly this morning. Yeah. Teach us, we pray, Holy Spirit. And we say together as a family, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Says this. Then John's disciples, John, it's speaking of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, okay? These are, these are disciples, these are followers, these are learners, not, not first and foremost of Jesus. They're investigating Jesus, but these are disciples of John the Baptist, okay? They come to him, the him there is Jesus, and they ask Jesus a question. This is what they say Why do we, John the Baptist's disciples, and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. Verse 15, Jesus replies to them. He says to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come. If you have that, a pen, underline that in your Bible. The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth. Because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. All right. So we're going to talk about this, this concept of the patches and the concept of the, the wineskins. But before we do that, we have to understand the first thing that gets addressed in this passage, and that is the, the biblical idea of fasting, okay? We need to understand some things about fasting. Uh, this will be review for some of you. Back in, I think it was 2020, uh, we did a whole series on fasting called Teach Us to Fast. 
And, t- and fasting is, is honestly, it's a spiritual discipline. It might be the most powerful spiritual discipline there is when it's paired with prayer. Fasting is something that I would argue the vast majority of the room avoids at all costs, <laughs> but there's something really profound about it. Now, what you need to know about biblical fasting is that it's not merely going without food. It's not merely going without food. It's not merely skipping meals. That's, that's called dieting, right, at best, or starvation at worst, okay? Biblical fasting is more than just going without flu- food. Biblical fasting, here's our, here's our definition as a church, and I believe it's highly biblical. Biblical fasting is foregoing food to feast on God, so it's not just foregoing food, it's foregoing food with a purpose, to feast on God. So he, here's the idea. The idea is to devote the time we would ordinarily spend thinking about food, preparing food, and eating food to engaging with God in prayer. So it's like almost like a, sub, it's like, like a temporary substitution. Does this make sense? Foregoing food to feast on God. Now, did you catch it? John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, we and the Pharisees, we fast often, but your disciples, we don't see them fasting. What's going on? He described, or that disciple describes that they would fast regularly. They would fast often. Now, if, if, if you just kind of read through this passage, you might miss what's being said right there. And, and I, want, I want to make sure that we don't miss the context you see, this is 2,000 years ago. The only scriptures they had at the time was the Old Testament, right? <clears throat> and in the Old Testament, there's only one fast that's prescribed by God. There's only one. It was the fast on um, Yom Kippur. Maybe you've heard about that before. I'll give you a really basic rundown of what Yom Kippur was. It was, it was the Day of Atonement, all right? And what the Jews would do is communally, they would fast, so they would forego food to feast on God. They would, they would fast, and what they would do is they would cleanse the sanctuary, right? The dwelling place of God on the earth. They would cleanse the sanctuary of impurity, and they would deal with their sin through, through blood rituals, okay? If you read the Old Testament, you see these everywhere. And maybe the most profound thing that they would do for Yom Kippur is they would send a goat out of the camp into the wilderness, this is what was known as like a scapegoat. It's kind of where we get that concept. And symbolically, what they would do is they would essentially like have the sins of the nation. When I say sins, I mean the ways that we all choose our way over God's way. My kingdom over his kingdom. My rule and reign over his rule and reign. We all do it all the time, internally, externally. It messes each other's lives up, all the things. So we need a savior. But they would symbolically have the sins of the nation placed on this goat, this scapegoat, and then they would send it away out into the desert. And kind of a digression, because I just want to talk about Jesus, but like the scapegoat was this, I'd say, beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus. If you study the Bible if you actually kind of dig a little bit deeper, you will see examples of the beauty of, how God, of God's redemptive plan through the Messiah, God's redemptive plan through Jesus, fully God, fully man, to absorb the sins of the world for the redemption of the world, the forgiveness of the world, the freedom. And this is just another one of those things of like, Jesus is the true and better scapegoat where the sins of the nation, the sins of the people were loaded onto him and he is the one that's cast away. I hope that, I hope that before we kind of jump back into this this morning, that you, like you actually, me too, that we can, we can actually experience the freedom of Jesus removing our sins, from, like atoning for our sins. Like you can be free from the condemnation, from the guilt, from the shame. And you're, filled, you're in a room right now with a bunch of other people who are just as messed up as you, just as in need of saving and freedom as you are. So you're not alone. But like Jesus was your scapegoat. He was my scapegoat. That's the gospel. But I want you to see that this, this Yom Kippur, that was, this is what they would do. And it was, it, was, it was only one fast that was prescribed in the Old Testament. And that can easily be missed. 
When you read that, they fast often. That's not going to register to most of us in the room. But the reality is, wait, why were they fasting often if there was only one fast prescribed by God in the Old Testament? Why? Here's why. You see, what would happen is over time, and this is consistent with all human groups, over time, these specifically, these Jewish leaders, they began to implement fasting more and more into their lifestyle, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Fasting's not bad. But it got to the point where Jewish tradition installed by Jewish leaders had come to require fasting twice a week. So I want you to get this picture, friends. It goes from God requiring it and calling his people to it once a year and there's an invitation to more than that too, but don't get me wrong, but the requ- like this, is, this, is a, this is a day everybody's doing it, right? From once a year to Jewish leaders requiring it twice a week. John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees, they were, they were careful to make sure to follow this practice. And they come to Jesus and they're concerned because Jesus, your disciples don't do this. And and what I want you to see here, friends, is is they were concerned, but their concern wasn't really about fasting, was it? The concern was that Jesus and his followers didn't conform to the accepted religious standards of the day. The accepted religious standards of the day. Now, friends, that's not just common to the Jews. That's not unique to them. There are different tribes of Christianity all over the earth, different denomination, different sects, different, all these different groups of Christianity, of Christians all over the world, and they have different religious standards. They're not inherently wrong or bad. They have different things that serve as, as, as boundary markers for the community. Are you tracking with me? Marcus, Lisa, thank you, EJ. Are you guys with me? I want to make sure, I want to see how much time I need to spend on this. These boundary markers, these, these, these kind of accepted religious standards of the day. And it still happens now. We were talking about this recently um, with, with my gospel community. Uh, <clears throat> one of these boundary markers, it's kind of like, seems kind of silly, but it's actually really prevalent, is different kind of, uh, I guess, different tribes of Christianity is they'll, they'll have a boundary marker around the, the preferred Bible translation. So like, like yes, there's you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of Bible translations, but there's only really one faithful Bible translation. And if you're not, like, if, if, if you're not exclusively in that Bible translation, well, then you kind of aren't really as righteous as I am, or as right, if that makes sense. And the reality is that's just simply not true, right? Like, don't get me wrong. To be candid, there are terrible Bible translations, okay? (laughs) There are some really, really bad ones. But hear me, there's dozens of faithful and trustworthy translations. But sadly, it can become this, like, boundary marker in the church for who's, like, really right or who's righteous, and who's not so righteous. It can become a boundary marker. Here's one that I'm, I, I'm confident will cause everybody in the room to kind of feel a little unsettled and a little angry with me, but politics. Politics. Um, I'll be candid with you. So I've, I've voted in five presidential elections in my lifetime. I think I was... I, if I have my math, I think I was eligible to vote, for, to vote in six, but I think I opted out of one of them, um, which I don't recommend anyone do, by the way. But I, in my lifetime, I've voted for, in five presidential elections. And to be candid with you, I have voted for both sides. And so what I mean by that is not like in the same election. <laughs> like I'm not like, ugh. <laughs> I mean like over time in different elections, right? And, and, and I've had people... And I don't, I don't, I'm not big on like, this is my political belief and I'm going to share it with you. Like, um, I, I think that Jesus is the savior of the world, not uh, political ideology. And so, but I've had, it, it, this has happened to me multiple times. I've had conversations with people and they flat out asked me different things. 
and this has happened to me on more than one occasion, where someone says, um, how can you call yourself a Christian and vote for that side? And here's what's crazy. It's happened from both sides. Sadly, political ideologies can become a boundary marker even in the church for who's more right, who's more righteous. And here's the problem. Who's drawing those boundary markers? Not God, right? And here's, hear me. If God's not drawing them, that means people are. And if people are, it's just another form of self righteousness, which is pride, which is contrary to the kingdom of God and sin. Self-righteousness, where people are justified by what they do or don't do instead of what God has graciously done on their behalf, right? Hear me, friends, that's religion. That's religion, and religion is the complete opposite of Christianity. Um, The late, great Tim Keller, just a wonderful gift to the church. Uh, This has stuck with me for years and years and years, and I love the way he simply sums up the difference between religion and the gospel of Jesus. He says, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. It's a totally different thing, right? John's disciples and the Pharisees, they actually believed they were capable of producing a righteousness, a rightness, as lawbreakers. Now, here's what I mean by that. Every single one of us, is anybody in the room never told a lie? (laughs) No, like, okay, so therefore we're lawbreakers and therefore we've fallen short of the glory of God. And so therefore we cannot produce the same righteousness that God produces. And so we buy into the lie that we can somehow, through our drawing of of an editing of boundary markers over time, that we can produce a righteousness. No, it's, it's, it's actually not righteousness. It's, it's self-righteous. It's pride. And so these, these disciples and these, these Pharisees, they're drawing their own boundary markers in an attempt to justify themselves. My first point, if you're taking notes, is this. Religion is when man draws the boundary markers instead of God. There's only one throne, right? Religion's when man draws the boundary markers instead of God. And here's the thing, it's dangerous. And the reason it's dangerous is because what can start out as kind of like additional boundary markers over time become replacement boundary markers. And hear me, that's why these Jews, the the John the Baptist disciples that come to Jesus, that's why they're concerned. They're like, Jesus, how can you and your disciples be godly while you aren't fasting twice a week? Why aren't you living within these boundary markers? And I want you to see how Jesus responds to them. It's really, really great. The first thing that he does is he provides clarity, okay? How gracious is Jesus? He could have just been like, you're, 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 you're missing it. See you later. But he doesn't. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. So I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't condemn fasting here, does he? No, what he does is he clarifies its purpose. He's a teacher. What he does is he, he, I don't know if you catch it, but he associates fasting with times of what? Sadness. Some translations say mourning. So he's directly associating fasting with times of sadness, times of of mourning, and specifically sadness due to a, a longing for God. 
I mean, he says it. He says, why would they fast when the groom's with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away and then they will fast. So it's this, it's this sadness around a longing for the, the proximity to God. God, you feel far, where is he? Like, you ever feel that way? Where you're like, man, I believe, I, tr- I trust that he's real. I, I trust that the gospel's true for other people. But I just feel like he's distant. Guys, remember, fasting's not just going without food. Fasting's foregoing food to feast on God. You fast when you're hungry for God. So in other words, we don't fast when he feels close. We celebrate, we enjoy him, we, we, we party, we like, yes, Jesus is in the room, let's enjoy him. We don't fast when he feels close, we fast when he feels far. And Jesus is bringing clarity to John the Baptist's disciples. It's beautiful. It's kind. It's loving. He goes, he's like, I'm, I'm right here. Why would they fast? The time is coming when they will. And, and guys, this is super helpful. I mean, this is, this is super helpful because fasting, like I mentioned before, is incredibly powerful. Some of you... Uh, you've never actually experienced the, the profound spiritual power of fasting. But it is incredibly powerful. The other day, um, I opened my laptop to, 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 do some, to respond to some emails, but I opened my laptop and I noticed um, that there was a movie, like a documentary movie that was on my screen. And it wasn't there magically. It was there because last time I had used my laptop... I was watching this documentary movie and I paused it, closed my laptop and I, you know, I got interrupted or something happened and I, and I went and did it and then I came back a couple days later or a day later or whatever, I opened my laptop and there it was on pause. The movie was on pause. I want you to think about your life, but I want you to think about your life like it's a movie your life like it's a movie. It's a story that's, that's playing out in real time. And you can anticipate some of the things that are going to happen. And then some of the things that are going to come your way, you have no idea they're coming. But I want you to think about your, your life like it's a movie, like it's a story that's playing out in real time. But you've got to understand the purpose. You've got to understand the plot. You've got to understand the why of your life. The, 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 the purpose of the movie that is your life, the purpose of your life is to live with God. To live with him at all times. Like, I'm talking not just in the kingdom of heaven, in the fullness of the kingdom of heaven after you die. I mean like every single moment of your life with him, engaging with him, enjoying him, conversations with him, interactions with him and with others all the time. Fellowship, deep, like unity, union, oneness Jesus talks about. Fellowship, right? Like knowing. The Bible, we've talked about this so many times, but it's like this biblical concept of knowing him Right? Like it's, it's deeper, than, it's more than just head knowledge. It's not just knowing things about him, it's knowing him, it's intimacy, right? So hear me. When you and I, when we're not living that way, it's like, it's like your true life is on pause. Hear me. Fasting's, one of the reasons why fasting is so powerful, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons why fasting is so powerful is because it unpauses the movie. It, it breaks off that spiritual numbness, that like, that spiritual sadness that sometimes we can feel, that feeling of being distant from God. You with me? It helps, it helps like reset that deep, close fellowship, friendship with God. What you were created for, it's the purpose of your life. Way more than your vocation, Way more than anything else you give your time to, the purpose of your life is to be with him, to know him, to be known by him, intimacy, closeness, oneness, union with him in everything that you do, the big things, the small things, everything. 
helps reset deep, close fellowship with God because fasting isn't primarily about foregoing food, right? It's about foregoing food in order to feast on God. So my second point for you this morning, what Jesus is saying here is he's bringing clarity. His disciples fast when they feel far from God. Friend, so can you. So can you. Like if you feel distant from him, if you feel like things are off, if you, if you feel like, God, I need, I need him, I need him and he feels a little bit farther than I'd like, you recognize that's spiritual hunger. You know, you're way more, I would argue you're more a spiritual being than you are a physical being. When you recognize that, when you feel that, that's what spiritual, that's spiritual hunger, that's what it is. If that's you, it sounds like you might really, really benefit from a fast. Maybe just like one day. Or maybe like longer. It just kind of depends on how hungry you really are. Foregoing food to feast on God. Okay, Jesus doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't just provide clarity, right? Not only does he bring clarity, he lets them know he's bringing change. All right? And he uses these two famous illustrations, patching an old garment and filling an old wineskin with new wine. Saying that doesn't work. Let's start with patching the old garment quickly. Look back at verse 16. I'm going to read it again. And get the picture here, okay? Use your mind's eye. He says, no one patches an old garment, picture an old garment, with an unshrunk cloth, basically a new patch. Because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. So over time, that new patch is going to shrink over time and it's going to make that tear worse, okay? So in other words, what Jesus is saying is there comes a time when patches are useless. A patch, it, a patch it, it actually won't fix the issue. You need to replace the garment altogether. Friends, Jesus didn't just come to bring clarity. He came to bring change. You see, these Jews, they were passionately attached to their traditions, passionately attached to their traditions so much so that their traditions had become new boundary markers. And Jesus is saying, like, that religion that you're now engaged in, those new boundary markers drawn by who? By man. That's something that cannot simply be patched up. That requires a completely new garment. It requires change. Um, if you ever study church history, I mean, there's some fascinating, amazing seasons of, uh, like, changes that the church has gone through the last 2,000 years. People like you and like me in different eras have been following Jesus together for 2,000 years all over the world. It's, it's remarkable. There's so many things that we can learn from our spiritual ancestors, but if you study church history, you'll see there's some incredible changes that have taken place in the church over the last 2,000 years. Anybody familiar with the, the monastic movement? Maybe you've heard of like um, monasteries. Anybody familiar with that word? Or monks, right? So there's still monasteries kind of all over the world, these, these physical places where, where, where Christians would, would go live these set-apart lives. And, 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 and I'll try to break this down to you really simply just for the sake of time. But Christians, they would, what they would do is they would live in these monasteries and at its most kind of basic, simple form, they would live these set-apart, consecrated lives dedicated to Christian worship, all right? And what, what they would do is their daily life, every single day, their daily life would be centered on prayer and work. Prayer and work. And guys, like the monastic movement was a movement, a global movement. Like, full-on revivals took place. It was spectacular. Like, it was a big, big deal. Let me get a little academic on you because I want you to see this picture. Uh, Jerry Sitzer, he says this, talking about the monastic movement. He says, quote, I think you guys have this quote. Yeah. The monastic movement peaked in the 12th century Europe. It's a long time ago. 
and has steadily declined since then. Though there have been a number of significant revivals along the way, including one in the 19th century. In what is known as the High Middle Ages, that's like 700 to 1,000 years ago, basically. Several thousand, get this picture, several thousand monasteries dotted the European landscape. And they played a dominant role in the culture. Christians were playing a dominant role in the culture. Towns grew up around these monasteries, which explains why even today monasteries, or at least their ruins, sit in the center of many European cities. Monasteries once owned large tracts of land, and the monks turned that land into prosperous farms, ranches, and vineyards. Monks became masters of skilled trades, too, and they put those trades to good use, producing producing items like furniture, wine, and cloth. Monks copied, illuminated, cataloged, and stored manuscripts in large libraries. They collected paintings, mosaics, sculptures, relics, and other cultural artifacts, established schools to teach people to read and write, bravo, and deployed missionaries to win barbarian groups to Christianity, thus helping to evangelize Western Europe during its darkest years. So oftentimes we think, there's more, but I'm going to read more, but I want to pause for just a second. We often think of the monks as just, they just live that set apart life. No, they're sending missionaries out to the world. Like they're doing amazing work. In short, monasteries preserved and spread the cultural heritage of Western civilization. We are profoundly indebted to these institutions for preserving this legacy, a legacy we value so much, end quote. So hear me. This is a move of God. The monastic movement, and it lasted hundreds of years. And it was, a, it was a tremendous blessing from God to the world. And listen, there were wonderful things about the monastic movement, but there was also some shortcomings, right? It had its shortcomings. And over time, just as with any tradition, people can start to prioritize the tradition over God himself. There's a reason why y'all don't live in a monastery. A thousand years ago, there's a really high probability you would have. Because the tradition starts to become the priority. Let me say this. When the tradition starts to become a priority, Jesus doesn't bring a patch. He brings change. Let me give you one more quote. This one's heavy. William Barclay says this quote, there comes a time when patches are useless and when individuals and churches have to accept the adventure of the new or, listen to this, or withdraw into the backwater, check this out, where they worship not God, but the past. Listen, the people of God from the very beginning have struggled with this. Worshiping their traditions, the the way things have been, the comfort, this is how we've always done things. Worshiping the past instead of worshiping God. So hear me, friends, when the tradition starts to become the priority, Jesus doesn't bring a patch, he brings change. But the truth is, let's just be real. The truth is, most people love change. They love it. They're just like, when can we change things up? No, most people hate it. Most people hate change, especially in the church. But like, we've always done it this way, and it's worked great. Like, we've always operated this way. We've always done it this way. Now some pastor or some staff member or some GC leader is changing things up. Who do they think they are? These these wicked people. Guys, honestly, there, there is serious temptation for every Christian. There's serious temptation to worship religious traditions. Like, please hear me. If there's one thing that causes a church to lose its excitement, 
If there's one thing that causes a church to like start to become stale, if there's one thing that causes a church, dare I say, to become irrelevant, it's a refusal to embrace the change that Jesus desires to bring. And so here's my question for us, one of my questions for us this morning. Will we be open to Jesus bringing change in our lives? Like individually, you as an individual, how open are you to Jesus bringing change in your life? How open are we to Jesus to bring change in our church? How open to Jesus are we to bring change in our households and how things operate and go down and the dynamic? Not just in our households, how open are we to Jesus bringing change in our finances? in our bank accounts, in our wallets, and how about this one, in our calendar? Or, nope, my way. It's a forfeit of the kingdom of God, and it's dangerous, and that's why Jesus is talking to these disciples. Will we be open to Jesus bringing change in our lives, or will we worship our traditions? Hear me, friends, in love. A lot of soul searching for me this week. For some of us, we don't need a patch. We need a change. All right, the next illustration Jesus uses is the wineskins, right? Look back at verse 17. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved, okay? Now, you've got to understand the concept here. I know many of you already know this, but stay with me. If you're going to make wine, it needs to ferment, right? And that fermentation process, it releases gases and different things. So if you put unfermented wine into new wineskins, and it ferments, those new wineskins are able to absorb and stretch enough to preserve that wine and let it ferment. If you put unfermented new wine in old wineskins that have already stretched, they're going to stretch even more and they're going to explode. So you lose the wineskin and you lose the wine. That's Jesus' point here. What's he doing? He's reinforcing the point that he just made. There are times when a change is required. The old wineskins, they simply won't work to produce the new wine. Are you getting this idea? Um, We've talked about this quite a bit fairly recently as a church, specifically like um, with youth ministry. Parents in the room, this will be refresh, like a refreshment to you. But I want to I put some of the things we've talked about in the past in front of you as a, as a modern day illustration for what we're talking about, these concepts of discerning what kind of change Jesus is inviting us into as his followers. And so one of the things we've talked about is how do we identify what is going on, what season, the timing that we're in. And we've talked about, we started to identify, not because of necessarily Um, any infinite wisdom on the part of our our leadership and staff, but because of data that we're seeing in the church, and not just our church, in the American church. You guys throw up that first slide, the old wineskins of youth ministry. And so this is all data that we've we've taken from uh, from Barna and Awana and these other Christian organizations that have, have, have studied this in depth, right? And so basically, we've discovered like the old way of doing things. And before I get going on this, let me just have your attention. Before I get going on this, this is not bad. Old wine is not bad. In fact, those of you people who enjoy wine, you know the old wine usually tastes the best, does it not? Until it runs out. Okay? So hear me. This is not bad. But the priority... In, in youth ministry in the modern church was to prioritize in entertainment and preference. How do we entertain the students and how do we give them enough of their preferences so they really want to come to this, okay? And so th- that looked like, well, let's give them a bunch of shared experiences, uh, help them make memories, help them have fun. How, how good is that? That's wonderful, okay? Let's just be honest. But that was the priority. And the second priority was, was preference, okay? So oftentimes, um, adolescent students, they don't really want their parents around. And so in in light of that, parents are are practically absent from the youth ministry, okay? And not only that, but like spiritual stuff can kind of, it's kind of weird, right? And so let's let's minimize that stuff as much as possible. We're not going to eliminate it. 
you know? We'll pray before meals and that kind of thing, but we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna limit that as much as we can um, because it's, it, it can be awkward for, for, for students, right? And so here's the result of, of those priorities. The result is you draw huge crowds, which is a huge win. It's really, really, it's good. You draw huge crowds, and, and, and one of the other results is, is students are then primarily formed by their peers. And not just their peers, they're, 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 they're formed by a handful of inconsistent young adults. When I say inconsistent young adults, what I mean by that is, is the people, the men and women who are a little bit further along the journey, who genuinely have a desire to walk alongside these students in loving ways, invest in their spiritual formation. It's a good thing. But because of what's going on in their world, they're only able to do that for like a year until their life changes and they're no longer able to step in that space. So it's, it's not an indictment on those youth leaders. It's just a matter of the dynamic of how this plays out. And they're just, they're not able to be as consistent. You with me in this? I don't want you to read this as this is bad, necessarily. Okay, so they're formed by their peers. They're formed by a handful of inconsistent adults. And they're formed by typically one youth pastor or one youth director. Now, here's where that's problematic. The average tenure of a youth pastor in America is 18 months. So you have this rotating door of adults, of, of, of a very small amount of adults that are influencing the lives of these young people in their spiritual formation, okay? And so what happened, what has happened over the last several decades, candidly, because of the priority being entertainment and preference, what's happened is that the church has taken on a definition and the church is defined as an institution that provides a product for me to consume based on my preferences, Now, hear me. This is responsible for a whole lot of salvations. Like a whole lot. Uh, thank you, Lord. To be able to cast the net that wide and bring young people to, to into the, the church, even to a small amount where they might potentially encounter God. Dude, that's amazing. Here's the problem. It worked really effectively for a while. It did. Here's the problem. You guys can go to the next slide. According to Barna, 70% of Christian students leave the faith during the college years. What does that tell us? The old wineskin, it produced some really great wine. And the wines run out. So the old wineskin, if 70% of students, I look around the room and I see a bunch of youth in the room. If 70% of you walked away from Jesus and the purpose of your life to enjoy him, obey him, and operate like him, if you walked away from that in four to six years, every adult in this room would be crushed. The old wineskins of youth ministry, they're not working anymore. So how do we discern, okay, what has got, what change might be Jesus inviting us into? And through tons of prayer and, 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 and seeking like, like wisdom from, from really, really intelligent people who are studying this. Here's the conclusion that we've come to. You guys can go to the, this is a review for all you youth parents. Sorry if you're not a youth parent, but this applies to not just them, but you'll see in a second, all of us. The new wine skin of youth community. Instead of prioritizing entertainment and preference, we don't just need to patch it up. We need new wineskins. The priority becomes encounter and presence. From entertainment and preference to encounter and presence. Encounter, what do, I mean, what do I mean by that? How do we foster environments where students can literally encounter God? If they see him, if they encounter him, if they experience him, they're gonna be like, whoa. God, like awe, wonder, the be- like you're gonna, you're gonna be devoted because he's so beautiful, so kind, so magnificent, so forgiving and just wonderful. You can be like, he's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And they're gonna be devoted to him because you become like what you behold. We've been talking about this, right? So how do we foster environments for encounter? And then secondly, how do we foster environments where the presence of God is there? Like all the data says that this generation is the most anxious and depressed generation on record. You know what they don't need? They don't need to be medicated. They don't need to, they don't need like, here's some self-help tips. What they don't need is they don't need more scrolling to release dopamine in their minds so that they can escape it. What they need is joy. They need joy. Like the scriptures say, Psalm 16 says, like, in the presence of God is fullness of joy. 
Not like a lot of joy. Not like some joy, like overflowing joy. Does anybody, does anybody in the room, does that sound like an like a enjoyable experience for you to be overflowing with joy? Yes, absolutely, right? And so, so in the process that we're building, this is gonna take years, but the process is then the church, shit, like the, how the church is defined by the very people who are engaging with it is it goes from, go back to the last slide really quickly, the pre- previous one, um, one more. It goes from, the church goes from being an institution that provides a product for me to consume based on my preferences to, go to the, the, back to that third one, to a family of priests, people worship, right? Blessing God. A family of priests who worship and enjoy their heavenly father together. So you see how it literally shifts what the church actually is. And let me just say this, I'm, I'm running out of time. Let me just say this. That stat, the 70% of students leaving the faith in college years, that has been haunting me for like seven years. Because that number wasn't 70. It's progressively getting worse. And I'm like, I gotta, listen. um, I'm, I'm trying to like filter in real time. I have to stand before God and give an account. Like, that's heavy, guys. 70%. I can't stomach that. I can't live with that. Um, what, how, do we, how, do we, how do we avoid that 70% leaving? Here's how you avoid it. If they know him, Students in the room, listen, everything that you guys do with youth ministry, everything, everything that Dorian takes you through, everything that the leaders try to provide, everything that your parents are, it's all so that you can have an encounter with the living God and you can experience his presence. Because if you do that, if you actually experience him, if you see him clearly, if you start to actually develop a a real relationship, a two-way thing, if you encounter, like, yeah, like, I talk to him, he talks back. Like he, he, I'm experiencing him. He's, he's doing things all around me. I'm seeing transformation in other people's lives. I'm seeing change in my life take place because of my friendship with Jesus. I feel less anxiety. I feel less depression. I feel more confidence in who I am without drifting into pride and self-righteousness. Like I'm seeing these things happen. If, that, if that's you, you go to college and whether, it's, whether you're in university or you're with other environments that are anti-Jesus and they go, dude, this isn't real. You're going to go, yeah, I know him. What do you mean he's not real? I can talk to him right now. Like if someone's like, hey, Herrick Berg is not real. I'd be like, you're out of your mind. Or maybe I am, but he's real. I can talk to him. I can engage with him. My life has been impacted by the love of JB over here. Like it really has. He's my friend. You want to guard people, not just students, but you want to guard people from that, like the dwindling faith, it's through the knowledge of God. And I don't mean intellectually, I mean intimacy. Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. The reason I share this with you is not to just kind of do some review on the, on the, on the, the vision for youth ministry. That's the same thing for adults, It's not limited to youth ministry. It's all of us, guys. The same thing applies to adults. The same thing could be said for the modern church in general. There's some old wineskins, friends. There's some old wineskins. I'm gonna touch on this. I know I'm running out of time, but here's what I'm seeing. You're free to disagree with me. Here's what I see about the old wineskins of the Western church. Very, very similar to the old wineskins of youth ministry. The old wineskins of the Western church is man-centered and consumer-oriented. It's been really, really effective at drawing large crowds for a little while. But the church can't keep up with culture, modern entertainment. The dopamine rush you're gonna get from TikTok blows the dopamine rush you're gonna get from the church trying to entertain you. 
now listen, is not bad. Old wineskins are not bad. I'm so thankful for that movement. Like, I came to faith in Jesus as a result of the intentionality of my spiritual ancestors that go, how do we leverage all this stuff to cast our nets super wide so that we can present the gospel to people? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it was fun. It was good. Old wine tastes fantastic. And my life is forever changed. My eternity is secured because of the old wine skins. How dare we slam them and put it down and be like, oh, we have a better way. And like, but it had some shortcomings. There's a phrase that gets used quite a bit in the modern church. I'm church shopping. Think about that. Listen, it's hard to find a, a good church. Like what I mean by that is it's like, it's a challenging thing because if it's not just an event, if you're gonna actually belong to a community, like you need to vet it, you need to investigate it. Like I'm not saying that's in a, in irresponsible, but like that phrase, I'm church shopping. We shop for products. We shop for, 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 for products to consume. The church isn't a product, biblically. We laugh about this all the time, of how ingrained in our culture the phrase is going to church. Like it's so ingrained into our culture, is it not? I'm going to church. Think about what that says about what the church is. We speak about the church like it's an event that we attend for entertainment, like we're going to a ball game or going to the movies or going to the mall. The old wineskins of the modern church, the focus has been on giving people what they want with good intentions. Again, I'm not, the old wineskins aren't entirely bad, but the focus of the, of the old wineskins of the, of the Western church, the focus has been on giving people what they want. You want to know what I think the new wineskins of the church is? And I really believe this is the heart of God. The old wineskins focusing on giving people what they want. The new wineskins focusing on giving God what he wants. From man-centered, which we leveraged really well, and salvations took place, millions. From man-centered to God-centered again. Restoring the ministry to God. I heard a pastor say, uh, ministry to God is the forgotten ministry in the church. We got marriage ministries, we got parenting ministries, we got youth ministries, we got all the ministry, we got recreation ministries, we got gardening ministries, we got like all the ministries. For who? For you. And that's not bad. We, we, we're called to minister to each other. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying but first things have to be first. It's the priesthood. So guys, listen. This is, what, this is what I believe with every fiber of my being. I believe that in 10 years, mark my words, in 10 years, Sunday mornings will look less like this and way more like the prayer room. People coming together with the primary purpose of blessing God. We're here for him. He's worthy. Good God, he's been so kind to me. Oh, I'm alive. I'm alive this week. He's worthy of my praise. Like, he's, he's, he's refining me and forgiving me and growing me and shaping me. He's worthy of my praise. And it's in his presence we experience that joy that we hunger for. And it's in his presence that he fills us with power to love other people around us, to minister to them with power and love the way that he ministers to us. It's a filling up before a pouring out. Which if you read the New Testament, the book of Acts, guys, it's literally, it's commentary on what happens in between prayer room meetings. It's literally what it is. The people of God come together to bless him as a priesthood, as a people who are oriented around loving him, blessing him, worshiping him, praising him, offering themselves to him, not to get something from him, but just because he's so flippin' worthy. And then the spirit of God fills the people and then they go. And they execute God's will both locally and translocally. 
You wanna know what the church in 10 years is gonna look like on Sundays? Way less like this. Way more like the prayer room. Why? Because Jesus desires to bring change. He doesn't just wanna bring clarity. He wants to bring change. And not for the sake of bringing change, but for the sake of bringing his kingdom. Of advancing it. And he's been, phase after phase after phase after phase in church history. You see this happen all the time. Some seasons last longer than others. All of them are filled with grace. All of them are filled with God's power. And then you see this pattern repeat of the people of God start to prioritize the tradition. This is the way we've always done things. And Jesus is going, you want want new wine or not? Friends, Jesus is saying there comes a time when you can either worship the past or you can worship him, but you can't do both. And that's what he lovingly explains to John the Baptist's disciples. And I think he wants to show us the same thing. So I'm out of time. Ben, will you come up? I want to close in just a minute. I need water. So I want to I be really intentional. I want to be humble and know, I want to just confess to you, like, I don't have all the answers. Herrick doesn't have all the answers. The staff doesn't have all the answers. But we know the one who does. And we want to collectively, not just as, as GC leaders and our entire church, how do, we, how do we band together in humility going, Jesus, what are you inviting us into? What change do you desire to bring in our lives as individuals, our lives corporately, collectively together? Like, what do you want to do, Jesus? Instead of, Jesus, why don't you do what we're doing? Why aren't you doing what we've always done? Jesus goes, because you're building your kingdom. I'm building mine. Which one do you want to participate in? There was a time when Jesus was, was actively at work in all these old wineskins. There's a time when the old wineskins were new wineskins, were they not? How do we know if we're avoiding the change Jesus is bringing? We know when we choose to hold on to the traditions, the way things, the way we've always done things, instead of embracing that change, the discomfort of it, with faith, with trust. We're in this together. Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we think God's saying this, but he didn't. And, oh, let's pivot. But more than that, more than just trusting each other, trusting our king. That he, he actually knows what's best. And how do we know that he knows what's best? Yom Kippur, the scapegoat, the one who willingly took on all of our sin, the one who was was cast away, was punished on your and my behalf. He's trustworthy, man. He's full of mercy, full of grace, full of forgiveness, full of patience with people like me who are going, I actually really feel comfortable doing it this way, Jesus. It's what I've always done. I'm actually, I'm actually, I've put in my 10,000 hours. You know, Malcolm Gladwell says that that's how you can become like a master of something is you put 10,000 hours in. I'm comfortable because I'm, I'm, I'm approaching that 10,000 hours and this is becoming really easy and Jesus is going, oh, my boy. You can follow Malcolm Gladwell if you want or you can follow me. Are you open to what God may want to change in your life, friend? If not, you're going to miss out on the new wine. I don't want to miss out on the new wine. I don't want to miss out on the new wine. I don't want to miss out on what God wants to do in me and through me and in you and and through you and in our children. But that new wine, it requires trusting Jesus, worshiping Jesus instead of worshiping the past. So my question that I want to leave you before we go into response time is like, are there old wineskins in your life that you're refusing to let go of? even though the wine's gone? Are you clinging on to how things have always been instead of embracing the new season that Jesus might just be inviting you into? He's trustworthy. We can trust him with the change that he desires to bring and we can discern it together. Will you stand with me if you're able? I wanna pray for us. From the prayer team, the ministry team, would you come forward, please?
in order to protect the amount of time we have left, I want to I be very quick right now, and I want to invite um, specific people. This is a time when we are going to operate in our priesthood. We're going to praise God just because he's worthy not to get something from him. But there's also not just priests in the room, there's patients in the room, people who need care, people who need clarity, people who are looking, seeking guidance, who, who need courage to like take Jesus by the hand and, ex- and receive his invitation to change things up a little bit for the, for the furthering of his kingdom in you and through you. And so if that's you, I want you to come forward for prayer today in any way, shape, or form. Maybe it's in your marriage. I got a picture of Amir this morning and I really feel like Jesus is going like, I need to show you some things about yourself. Not to rub it in your face, but it's part of him transforming you into his likeness. And so let me pray for us and then I wanna invite you to come forward, receive prayer, and let's praise Jesus together. Holy Spirit, we posture ourselves in humility right now, especially me. I am not the determiner of what new wine is. Nobody in this room is the determiner of what new wine is. Only you, Jesus. Only you, Jesus. You're the king, but you're not just any king. You're a king who uses every single ounce of your authority to bless us, even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment. You're such a wise and good king that you can even bless us through suffering. You're that good. And so I pray that you'd speak to every heart this morning. And you give us faith and courage to trust you and your invitation to set old things aside with gratitude and step into the new. Whatever that looks like for each individual and especially for us corporately and collectively as a church. Be our shepherd, we pray. Amen.